If you join me in Bible study this beautiful Shabbat morning, please open up to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is a very interesting chapter. We started verse 1 last week, which reminded us that we are the children of the Lord our God, the true and living God. And what is Deuteronomy 14 about? As a general rule, it's about clean and unclean foods. So why would that begin with a reminder that we are the children of the Lord our God? Let's see if we can discover that as we read on in verse 2, which says, For, which means because, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What word just jumps out there? You are a what? A holy people. Holy, set apart, different from the world, not like the world. What sets us apart from the world? Our faith, which leads us to follow the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So there is a big relationship in the scriptures between avoiding unclean foods and being holy to the Lord your God. Let's start in the book of Leviticus in chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. Verses 25 to 26. I want you to see how often God relates holiness to avoiding things that are unclean. Leviticus chapter 20 verses 25 and 26 says, You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by any beast or by bird. Uh-oh, what's that word abominable? Isn't something abominable something that God hates, that he despises? It says, you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird. Which means if we are eating unclean animals, what does God call us? Abominable. Is that the way you want God to classify or think about you? No. It says, or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and has separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Well, wait a minute. In Leviticus chapter 20, he's talking about clean and unclean birds and unclean and unclean animals. When did God make them unclean? From the beginning, they were always clean or unclean? Yes, we learned that in Genesis, don't we? Turn back to Genesis chapter 7. How many times have you heard, well, God just made them clean or unclean for the Jewish people. For everybody else, everything's clean. But if we go back to Genesis 7, where there were no Jewish people, in verse 2 it says, you shall take with you seven each. It's actually seven pairs. The Hebrew says... Shiva, Shiva, Ish, Ishto. Seven pairs of every clean animal, a male and its female, that is a breeding pair, 
to each of animals or one pair of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, that's seven pairs, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So as far back as Genesis chapter 7, when God says seven pairs of the clean and one pair of the unclean, does Noah stand back and go, I don't know what you mean? You mean some crawled in the dirt? No, that's not what God means by clean or unclean. So they've always been clean or unclean. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. <coughs> the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then the same chapter, verses 9 to 11. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. Actually, it says in Hebrew, he is the God, meaning the one and only. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him, and that's a participle, loving, continuous action, and keep, literally a participle, keeping his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, what's therefore mean? Because God is faithful and keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. And then on to Deuteronomy 28. Verse 9. You keep seeing the emphasis on a holy people. Holy unto God, for God is holy. God says, be ye holy as I am holy. It says in Deuteronomy 28.9, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. And what's that next word? If. if. You keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. That's Deuteronomy 28. Verse 9. Where is it in the scripture where it first says, Be ye holy, for I am holy? What's the first chapter to discuss clean and unclean foods, which are and which aren't? It's Leviticus 11. It's in this very chapter on clean and unclean foods that God emphasizes, You be holy because I am holy. If you want God to dwell in your midst, can you dwell in uncleanness? The answer from God is no. So Leviticus 11 verse 44, and it's what gets quoted in 1 Peter. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. What does it mean to consecrate yourselves? Set yourself apart. Make yourself holy. It says, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves. That word defile means to make your soul unclean. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And what's the next word? This is the law of the animals and the birds. In other words, verses 47, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. So as God emphasizes over and over, consecrate yourselves, be holy, for I am holy. It's in the context of put away the unclean foods. What did the children of Israel have to eat in Egypt? Whatever they had, right? So they may have picked up all kinds of bad habits in Egypt, but God says it's time to consecrate yourselves, to put aside any of those things. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 29. God's going to hit this topic over and over again. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 10. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes, and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, and the what? the stranger, the non-Jew who's been grafted in, who is in your camp, from the one who cuts wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone. This is the part I want you to notice. Not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today, meaning those who come in the future. That's talking about you and I. For you know that we dwell in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And it goes on. The reason I brought us to Deuteronomy 29 is I wanted you to see that the covenant and the oath was not just with those in the wilderness, with all those who come later in time, which includes all of us. Go to Titus. Could that really be Titus? We'll find out shortly. Titus chapter 2. This chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. If we have made ourselves abominable before the Lord, what does this say about us? We were supposed to deny all that, right? Deny all the ungodliness, deny the worldly lusts, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Let's go all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. Verse 5. Because we see that little word again. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's an if then. If we will keep the commandments of God and his covenant, then we shall be a special treasure and we shall be a holy nation. Does God really care what we eat? Let's turn up to 1 Peter. Like I said, 1 Peter quotes from these verses. From Leviticus chapter 11. First Peter chapter one. Right after Hebrews in James. First Peter chapter one. Starting in verse thirteen. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, which means be right minded be in your right mind not insane and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as what obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former losses in your ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written be holy for I am holy. Let's see, we have a red circle out here. Can I please put everyone on mute, okay? So verse 15 ends, Be holy, for I am holy. That's quoted from Leviticus chapter 11. And of course we have to add to it 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
I'd like to have a dollar for every time somebody said, how come if we're not supposed to be eating piggies, it doesn't say anything like that in the New Testament? And when I respond, well, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, they say, no, I'd rather not. <laughs> but 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is right on point. Starting in verse 16, just a short version. And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. People say, Wayne, in verse 17, that unclean cannot refer to unclean foods because God told Peter we can eat it. No, Acts chapter 10 is not permission to eat pigs. But when you look at verse 17, then you look at chapter 7, verse 1. To cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Where did God say, be ye holy for I am holy first? In Leviticus chapter 11, which is the chapter about food. Let's look also at Psalm 135. And then, of course, when the conversation comes down to God couldn't care less what we eat. My only comeback is, well, just ask Adam and Eve. Yeah. Psalm 135, verse 4. <clears throat> for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. So the Lord chose Jacob for himself, Israel for for his special pleasure. What's the difference between Jacob and Israel? Israel's believers. They're obedient unto God. So to go from Jacob to Israel is to come to faith in God and follow him in all things. Let's get back to Deuteronomy chapter 14 before I get preachy. We're up to verse 3. You shall not eat any, our Bible says, detestable thing. What the Hebrew says is you shall not eat any abominable thing. You shall not eat any abominable thing. Why? Because it says in Leviticus, because that makes you abominable to the Lord. We would normally at this point go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but we just did. So just put in your notes. Why not eat any abominable thing? Because God said if you'll put away the unclean things, he would what? He would make us his children. Do you want to be the child of God? Let's go also to 2 Corinthians 12. We normally don't add 2 Corinthians 12 since 2 Corinthians 6 is so clear. But since I got ahead of myself, We'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
verse 21. The Apostle Paul is kind of lecturing the Corinthians in a letter. And he tells them to put away their sin and to sanctify themselves and cleanse themselves. In verse 21 he says, Lest, when I come again, my God will humble me among you. What's that mean? He's going to break out the, the switch, right? Bring out the switch. Woodshed experience. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, the fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. The uncleanness. Have you noticed that in American society today, they push uncleanness so hard? How many times you go out to a restaurant and you have almost nothing on the menu that doesn't have pork in it somewhere, somehow? Even to the point that they're now putting bacon and ice cream and milkshakes. Ugh, yuck. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 14. Like I said, most of this chapter is about watch what you eat. So verse 1 was, you'll be children of the living God if you do this. Number 2, you're a holy people, a special treasure if you do this. Verse 3, don't you eat no unclean thing. I paraphrase. Verse 4 says, these are the animals which you may eat. The ox. What's an ox? a cow. Yeah. The sheep. Well, we all know what sheep are. The goat. Doesn't say you have to eat a goat. Says you can eat a goat. I choose not to. The deer. The gazelle. The roe deer. The wild goat. Those wild goats in Israel, they are amazing. Have you seen them, the ibexes? They will walk up a straight mountain wall. Absolutely straight. I don't know how they do it. And there's not a, a guy up the top with a rope keeping them from falling, but they're amazing. The mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. What characterizes all these animals? They all have cloven hooves and chew the cud. So verse 6 says, and you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. There's an ant. Split hoof into two parts, and that chew the cud. So how about a kitty cat? No. Dogs? No. What about camels? Camels have cloven hooves. But they don't chew the cud, right? So verse 7, God says, I meant both parts. Verse 7, nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hoofs, you shall not eat. Got to have both. Such as these, the camel. Now I know you've all seen a camel and said, man, I want to eat that, right? No. The hare, what's a hare? It's a rabbit. And the rock hyrax. That's a rabbit too, just a different kind of rabbit. For they chew the cud, but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. 
Verse 8. Also the swine. What's the swine? It's a pig. Why don't they just say pig? The pig is unclean for you. Because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. Whenever we talk about clean and unclean foods, I like to focus on the pig. Why? Because they're so common. That's true. Part of our culture. They were the main sacrifice to the pagan idols. What did we read last night studying about Hanukkah? What were people allowed to sacrifice under Antiochus Epiphanes? Only the pig. So that's why the pig is a special symbol of those who participate in pagan idolatry. When Messiah cast out legion, he cast them into a herd of pigs. Not just any pigs. Those were special black pigs of Gadara. Those were the special pigs for the December 25th sacrifice. The ones like Antiochus sacrificed on the altar in Israel. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. I know that in Hebrew there are temporary prohibitions and permanent prohibitions. Does this, just for everybody else, is this a toe clue or low toe clue or do not? It says low toe clue. Do not ever. Thank you. Yep. Because you're right. There are temporary prohibitions. I hear a lot of people say, Wayne, yes, God said don't eat pigs because that's only because they didn't have refrigerators in the desert. And if you leave pork out in the sun for a week, it can make you sick. Well, what happens if you leave lamb or cow out in the sun for a week? Same thing. Yeah. So it's not whether they had refrigerators or not. Go back to Genesis chapter 7. They were unclean from the beginning. Now God also points out swine in particular in several scriptures. One is in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 are about the second coming of the Lord. Has he returned yet? No. So these are prophecies of events that are yet future to us. So people can say, yeah, 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 Wayne, but Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that was before the resurrection. Maybe. But the prophecies of the second coming are 2,000 years after the resurrection. And Isaiah chapter 65, we'll start in verse 2, the key verse is 4. God's going to tell us about things that absolutely disgust him. Isaiah 65, 2 says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Is that the way you want to be in standing before the Lord? No. Who sacrifice in gardens. Does that mean amongst fruits and vegetables? No, it's among the trees. I'm talking about idolatry. And burn incense on altars of brick. Who sit among the graves. What's wrong with sitting amongst the graves? That's unclean. And spend the night in the tombs. Who eat swine's flesh? What's a swine? A pig. 
and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. How does God feel about these people? It says, who provoke me to anger continually to my face. So this goes back to Rachel's question. Was God's prohibition against pork just an ancient thing or just a Jewish thing? The answer is no. Again, Isaiah 65 is about the time of the Lord's return. And chapter 66 of Isaiah continues to talk about Messiah's return. And in verses 14 to 17, God talks about folks who are going to die when Messiah returns. Slain by the word of God that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord and Savior when he returns. Verse 14 begins, when you see this, that is when you see Israel being defended by God, your heart shall flourish and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. So there's only two categories in God's mind. Those who serve him, those who are obedient to him, and those that are his enemies, for they have rejected him. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge whom? Jewish people? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. This is Revelation 19 when Messiah returns. Verse 17 says who those are that are being slain by the Lord. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens. After an idol in the midst. Eating swine's flesh. What's a swine? A pig. And the abomination in the mouth shall be consumed together says the Lord. Why? What did the scripture say? Eating these things makes one abominable to the Lord. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Whenever there's a controversy and some people are saying, well, that was just Old Testament, that doesn't apply anymore. I go and look at the prophecies of the future. Because what percentage of God's prophecies will come to pass? All of it, 100%. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 23 to 24, this is describing a time after Messiah returns, takes his seat on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem, and is ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. Time yet to come. It says in verse 23, and they, talking about the priests serving under Messiah, shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. If the Lord made everything clean, how, why would they need to teach people to discern between the unclean and the clean? Clearly, there are still unclean and clean. Verse 24, in controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Has the Torah changed from the time that it was given in the Old Testament to the time Messiah rules and reigns? Answer is no. 
Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 both tell us that Messiah himself will teach the Torah in the kingdom. Let us go back to Deuteronomy 14 because I digress. Verse 9. Let me turn that microphone just a little more. Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Anybody ever go fishing? Cast in a line? Pull out a fish? How do you know whether you can eat it or not? It says you may eat all that have fins and scales. Do catfish have scales? No. So unclean. How about shark? Nope. If it's got fins and scales, I don't care what it's called. You can eat it. Verse 10, and whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat. Does that mean the ones that didn't get dirty? No. But these you shall not eat. The eagle. How does an eagle differ from a turkey? An eagle eats dead stuff. Yeah. The vulture. The buzzard. You're starting to get the idea. If it eats roadkill, it's not dinner. Okay? The red kite, the falcon, and the kite after its kinds. These are kinds of birds of prey. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich. We can't eat ostrich? No, we can't eat ostrich. The short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, and the white owl. The jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl. The stork, the heron after his kind, and the hoopoe. And, oh darn it, we can't eat bats either. Yeah. Somebody somewhere, I'm sure, is making bat stew, but nope, not for me. Verse 19, also every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. Flies, mosquitoes, they eat you. You don't eat them. <laughs> verse 20, you may eat all clean birds. That's just a restatement of verse 11. You may eat all clean birds. So is turkey okay? Yeah. Chicken? Yeah. Squab? Yeah. Still don't want it. But it's unclean. It's clean. It's not unclean. Verse 21. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who's within your gates that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Boy, we've got some stuff to talk about there. First, we must go back to Leviticus chapter 17. I know this is one of the questions that came up recently in a Q&A. It says you can give it to the gear, the stranger, the non-Jew. But the strangers are not permitted to eat it either. So it's going to tell you whether the stranger is following God's law or whether he's not. Is he a gear hasha'ar or just a gear? Leviticus chapter 17 verse 15 says... And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he's a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. 
So if the gear eats it, it's going to make him unclean, and it's going to show that he's not following the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Let's go to Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verse 19. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Again, in a verse that seems to be unrelated, we find the commandment, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. But two things to remember. First of all, the scripture was not written with Bible chapters and verse numbers. So why they chose to include it in a verse that was on an unrelated topic, hard to say. Second is, see where it says, in both places you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The word in Hebrew there is gadi. It really is a young goat. Not a cow. Not a lamb. It specifically is a goat. Whenever you see a symbol for Satan, it's often a goat head, right? The Baphomet. Yeah, boiling a young goat in his mother's milk was a pagan practice as an offering to Satan. Does God want us to imitate the pagans and do to him what they do for their gods? The answer is no. So what does it say about a cheeseburger? Unless it's made from goat, not much, right? So where did the Jewish prohibition against cheeseburgers come? And the regulations that say you have to have two sets of dishes, one for meat and one for milk comes from rabbinic fences. Exactly. They say that if you eat a cheeseburger, how do you know that the meat in the burger didn't come from the calf of the mother who gave the milk from which the cheese was made, and then it boils in the stomach acids? To which I go, it's still not a goat. Right? It's still not a goat. Go to Exodus 34. Remember, God said, don't add to or take away from. Exodus 34, verse 26. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So there's three times that verse appears. And in which of the three does it say a calf? Answers none. In all three cases, it's a young goat. Now, how can we prove that it's not talking about a cheeseburger? That you can't have meat and milk together as the rabbinic rules came to be. Well, let's go back to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Verses 1 through 8. Got to admit, Genesis is a long way back in history. Genesis chapter 18, 
Let me give you a chance to find it. We'll read verses 1 through 8. Oops, I got a red one out here. Let me check and see what it is. Is duck clean or unclean? Duck is okay. Goose is not, but a duck is okay. There's some controversy over that amongst the different commentators, but duck's okay. Why would a goose not be? I'm sorry. I say goose. I meant swan. Oh, oh, oh. Swan is specifically an unclean creature. And the rabbinic fences said, well, swans have webbed feet, therefore any webbed-footed bird, and therefore you can't eat duck. That's just a fence. Swan is specifically called out. Yep. So in Genesis 18, verse 1, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Where's Mamre? You've been there? Hebron. It's an old name for Hebron. As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Then I may bring you a morsel of bread and that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. This is the Lord and two angels. And the Lord say, how dare you serve me calf and meat and milk and all that together? No, it says, and they ate. The rabbinic response to this is to say, well, I know it says in verse 8 that they ate, but they only pretended to eat. They lied to Abraham. They misled him. Well, that's not what my Bible says. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 14. To verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. So what's the tithe on? The increase of the grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. And where is that place? That is Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 12, we learn that the only place you can take the tithe except in the third year is to the temple in Jerusalem. In every third year, it's shared amongst the Levites and the poor that are scattered amongst the people. Says the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What does it mean to fear the Lord your God? To be obedient. To be reverent, to be obedient. Yes, ma'am. Doesn't this say that you may eat your tithe? 
Yes, when you take the tithe up there, you eat part of it. You eat it before the Lord. That is in Jerusalem. When you go up to celebrate. And then you give the rest of it to the priests. Yeah. So whenever you went up to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals and to celebrate, it was a big barbecue. Kind of like today we're talking about the 4th of July barbecues, how you look forward to it. The people really look forward to going up to Jerusalem to celebrate. Verse 24. But if the journey is too long for you, that you're not able to carry your tithe, which means suppose you're up in Nazareth, which is 75 miles or so from Jerusalem, and you've got to carry 10 cows, 40 lambs, and barrels and barrels and barrels of wheat and wine and oil. Can you carry it that far? No, that may be too far. Or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. That is, you sell the tithe. And you take the money with you to Jerusalem. And then what do you do? Do you eat the gold? No. Do you give the gold to the priests and the Levites? No. It says, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, that is, on whatever food. You can buy lambs, you can buy goats, you can buy cows, you can buy wheat, you can buy oil, you can buy wine. It says, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. So you take that money and you go up and you buy replacement food. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Can't you just give the gold or the silver to the priest? The answer is no. You buy replacements for the things that you sold because you couldn't take it that far. Verse 27. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So when you take the tithe and the offerings up to Jerusalem, it goes in the storehouse in the temple for the priests and the Levites that are on duty. How often are those priests or Levites on duty? What's that? The louder? All the festivals. All the festivals, and then one week in the spring and one week in the fall. So a total of about five weeks of the year, the priests and Levites are at the temple doing their duty. So do they go hungry the rest of the year? No, that's what this verse is about. You shall not forsake the Levite who's within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So part of the tithe, verse 28... At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. So for the Levites that are spread throughout the land, they get the tithe every third year. So that way they can feed their families and continue to do what God has called them to do throughout the year. Why did God put Levites and priests throughout all the people, throughout all the land? To teach them. They're supposed to be teaching the Torah when? All the time. All year long. 
Hmm. What is their compensation for teaching the scripture? All that. The food. That's right. Sam Kisaza says, how does the tithe apply to us? The answer is, it does not. The tithe only applied while the temple was standing or the tabernacle. And it's not. So verse 28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. So years 1, 2, 4, and 5 go to Jerusalem. Years 3 and 6 are scattered throughout the land for the priests and the Levites that are scattered amongst the people. What about the tithe of the seventh year? Remember, you can't plant, you can't harvest. There is no increase, except perhaps amongst the animals. So there's not going to be wheat. There's not going to be olive oil. There's not going to be wine. So that's why there's a storehouse in a temple to store food for the times in which there's none coming. So the Levites, what do they do on the, this is a little confusing, on the other years? I mean, obviously there are some things you can store, but there's some things can't be, they can't be stored to fresh. But there's enough that can be stored that people can eat throughout the year. Remember, there are still sacrifices in the temple all year long, yeah. every day. Yeah. So they can store the wheat, they can store the oil, they can store the wine, and there's animals being sacrificed every day. And they might have a little plot in their yard of fresh vegetables. Or they might. Not supposed to, but they might. Oh, okay. <laughs> It would be okay if they gave the Levites a lamb or a cow or whatever, just they didn't give them the one designated as the, as the sacrifice for Jerusalem. Right. So they could provide meat if they chose to. And they will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's just part of the Torah. They don't harvest the corners of the fields, for that's for the Levites, the strangers, the poors, the widows, the orphans. God always provides for everyone. If you are interested more in the tithe, on the website under topics, there's one special on the tithe where we look at every single verse as well as the history of the tithe. So verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. That's from that tithe of the third year, so years three and six. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now, the rabbinic requirements are, yeah, but. You go ahead and bring your tithe and offerings to the temple every year. And then this third and sixth year is an additional tithe on top of everything else. But that's not what the scripture says. That's just a fence. Just a give me more. I need a bigger airplane. Okay. Chapter 15. Chapter 15 is about the Shemitah years. We've heard a lot these last few months about the Shemitah years and the years of Jubilee. So, oops, I got a number, another red one out there. Let me see. 
Chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. So, if you borrowed from me in year three, and you're paying it back, when we come to the end of year seven, it's forgiven whether you've paid it all back or not. We just let it go. Why would we do that? Because God said so. Do we owe God? And do we want God to forgive us our debts? Then we forgive those that are indebted to us. It's called the Shemitah year, that seventh year. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 4. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 4. And for context, we're going to start in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying. What's that word saying? It means it's a quote. So whose words are these? These are the Lord's words. Moses did not make this up. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. The seventh year. There should be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. Nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it's a year of rest for the land. What happened when Israel didn't let the land rest 70 times? They went into captivity for 70 years. Verse 6, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for your male servant and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. So it's not that you couldn't eat it. You could. But you can't gather it in the barns. You can't say it's mine. It's the Lord's. And he said anybody and everybody can go out and eat whatever they need from it. They what? They can store up a lot for the next year. No, they can't store up a lot. And if anybody goes out and gathers it? They can only go out and get what they need oh. at the time. You can't bring it into the barns. Can't harvest it. Mm. So on the sixth year? So on the sixth year, God provided? Like double, double portions or something? And then I think it was actually three times the amount. To make it through year six, year seven, into year eight till the new harvest came in. So God always provided. This is a way to test faith. Will I believe that God will provide for me? Or do I just have to go reap it all myself? Test of faith. So back in Deuteronomy 4, 15 verse 1. When does the release of debts come? 
at the end of the seventh year. Hmm. This has a direct correlation to Daniel chapter 9. Go up to Daniel 9. So God sets a pattern. There are six years, then the seventh year. There are six years, then the seventh year. And it just repeats over and over. Sixth year, then the seventh year. And Daniel 9, verse 24. When it says 70 weeks are determined, that's not weeks as in weeks of days, but rather weeks of years. What is the word for weeks, as in the Feast of Weeks? What's that? Good and loud. Shavuot. This word is not Shavuot. It's Shavuim. Shavuot, feminine, Shavuim, masculine. It's a different word. So it's 70 weeks of years, which means a week of years is six years followed by the seventh year, the Shemitah, the year of release. And there are 70 of those seven-year weeks. And when we come down to verse 27, then he, the false Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's that last set of six years plus a seventh year. So that seven-year period we call the tribulation period, can it start just anywhere within the seven-year period? No. It has to begin at the start of year one of a seven-year period. So it can't be just any year. And that sometimes we overlook when we're studying Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 14. No, 15, verse 2. Because it's going to tell us what they mean by the release of debts. What does it mean? And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it, meaning to cancel the debt. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So this doesn't apply to strangers in another country. It's talking about within the land of Israel. Your fellow countrymen, including the strangers that are grafted in like wild olive trees. If you have lent anything to your neighbor, if he's not repaid it by the end of the seventh year, it's canceled. It's over. I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Are they abiding th uh, of much of the Torah? No. Okay. If you file bankruptcy in the United States, you can't file bankruptcy again for how long? Seven for seven years. It comes from this same principle, the release of debt. Our court system acknowledges a lot of the Bible, doesn't it? 
Yeah, they don't give the Bible credit, but a lot of our law comes from the Bible. And that's why a lot of laws are being, oh, shall we say, phased out these days. If people are going, wait a minute, we're doing things God's way. We can't do that. So verse 3 says, of a foreigner, a nekhar, somebody of another nation, who's not part of us, not grafted in. Of a foreigner, you may require it. But you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. So that word for foreigner, there is no Cree. It is a true foreigner of another land. But if they want to be included in this release, all they have to do is get grafted in, right? Just move to Israel and be part of the people and worship God. Verse 4 um, except when there be no poor amongst you. Well, that's kind of obvious. Why are you loaning to someone? Because they're poor. If there's no poor, there's no one borrowing. If there's no one borrowing, there's no debts to be released. It says, For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. So if the people are always faithful to God, what does Deuteronomy 28 promise? There'll be no poor, right? There'll be no famine. There'll be no shortage. There won't be a need to borrow. So if there are people starving, then it's because the people as a whole are not being as obedient to God as they could be. Somebody would suffer if the leadership of Israel was choosing not to be obedient, not for, not for that particular person's mistakes. Just yeah, how does God judge a nation by its leadership? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 8, and see God's promise. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 8. This is one of the blessings God promises when the nation is being obedient to God with its whole heart. It says, The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So if the nation as a whole is following God with their whole heart, there's not going to be poor people. Hmm. Yes. Brother Wayne. Yes. What is a good example of this showing the, the disobedience be in the book of Ruth where their family was going through a famine and they didn't want to share in their wealth with their fellow countrymen and they left to uh, go to another nation? Yep. And what happened to the men then? They died. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So back to Deuteronomy 15. We're up to verse 5. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments I command you today. That only goes back to when there be no poor among you. So God's saying, you want to know how to make sure there'll be no poor amongst you? 
then carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. Is our nation following the Lord our God with its whole heart? Are our leaders in Washington standing up and giving prayers before God each day and following them with, no, we know better. So is our country being under God's judgment at any point in time? Are the fields either being blown away or flooded? Are the crops failing? Are the animals dying? The more we turn away from God, the more of that we should expect to see. Hmm. Does the scripture say, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord? Yeah. So this is not just for Israel. Verse 6. For, which means want. Because the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. That just as he promised you means including all the ifs and thens. Did God promise to bless us beyond measure if we're disobedient and following after the ways of our own heart? He did not. He says, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. But that goes back to verse 5. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments I command you today. So when people turn away from God and still expect God to bless them and they call that faith, is that faith? No. Faith is believing that God will do exactly what God has said he will do. And do you know what God will do? Exactly what he said he will do. There's a big teaching on YouTube right now. One of the really well-known theologians preaching that God loves everyone. God will bless everyone. We're all going to be wealthy and healthy and powerful because God loves everybody. They left out the ifs. They left out the thens. They left out the qualifications. That's not faith. That's just bad preaching. So back to Deuteronomy 15. I wish it was true that God will bless everybody no matter how much sin they're walking in. But God never promised that. Verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren... Within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. What does that mean? Be generous. Be generous. Why? Why should we be generous to the poor? Because God's generous to us and provides us the bounty with which we can share with the poor. Verse 8, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need. Notice the qualification, sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. 
Does God ever promise us all our wants? No, just our needs. Verse 9 says, Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand. And your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin against you. So verse 9 says, The seventh year is not the seventh year from when you land. It's the seventh year of the seven-year cycle. So if it's year seven and my neighbor is poor and asks me to share a bucket of wheat, can I think, oh no, he's not going to have a chance to repay it, so I'm not going to loan it. God says, no, that's sin. That's wrong. How can you say, I love my neighbor as myself, now go starve? You can't do that. Right, it's not you borrowed from me and now we start counting seven years. It's the calendar cycle of six years then the Sabbath year. Which is why the fact that that has been lost to time exactly when that is, is such a shame. But in the kingdom, will we know when the seven year period start and when they end? We absolutely will. Till then we just have to guess the best we can and go along. Yeah, go ahead. Um, um, he talks about uh, the Bible just said that we lend, so it's not giving with it's lending. Right, it, we're talking about lending. No, but, but when you see a, 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 a poor person in need, you're lending to them. It's not a commandment to just give freely to them, but you're lending with an expectation they're paying you back. Yes, that's what they're talking about here. So picture yourself in Israel 2,000 years ago. We live in the village of Nazareth. And it's a time where the rain hasn't been very good and the crops have failed in some parts. But my crops came in okay. Yours did not. And you ask if you can borrow from me and you'll repay it back when your fields come in next time. I lend you the wheat. And your crops, they come in great next year. You'll repay it. If they don't come in and they continue to fail until the end of the seventh year, you just never do have to repay it. I just let it go. Okay, yeah, I think I jumped to a present-day application trying to, as we're, we're, we're having a rise of homeless and folks in need. And just, I, I would yep. heard what you, what you read and I was trying to apply it. Yep, you're trying to take it out of his context. This applies in the land because God is providing the harvest in the land. So this is not a thing that we step back and say, well, this is America today. So if you want a new car and I lend you $10,000 to go buy a new car and then I don't pay it back for seven years, it goes away. This is not one of those. This is one of those applications like the tithe that is tied to being in the land. That's why, remember it started when you come into the land. There are some commandments that only apply in the land of Israel. Which is why some people like Paul's father lived outside the land of Israel. Because, well, he didn't want to participate in some of these commandments probably. Okay. 
On to Deuteronomy 15. We're up to verse 10. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. Which means God will ensure that you have enough to share with the poor. So don't say, well, it's mine. I did it. I worked for it. It's mine, mine, mine. You go starve. God provided it to us so that we have the ability to share. Verse 11 says, for the poor will never cease from the land. That brings a tear to my eye. Because God said, if you're loving me and following me with all your heart, there won't be any poor. Then he says, the poor will never cease. What is God saying? That, that we're not going to be as obedient as he would command us to be, right? Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. If the wealthy would share their produce that God provided with the poor, then everyone eats, everyone worships the Lord, everyone celebrates. And that brings additional blessings upon the land, doesn't it? Verse 12, we're starting another one, another commandment that is limited in scope. It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years. Why would a Hebrew man or woman be sold to me? Means they're poor. I pay their debts for them, and now they're going to work for me. We call it today employees. Yeah. Or maybe a better example is indentured servitude. Uh, when people wouldn't be able to pay their fare to come over from England to the United States. So they would agree to work for the company for a number of years when they brought them over. This is what we're talking about. Hebrew man or Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you six years. Then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. So the year of release includes Hebrew servants. They sold themselves into servitude to you because they got poor, they got into debt, and they couldn't repay it. So they come to work for you to pay off the debt. They work to pay off the debt. You cannot have them work for you more than the period of the Shemitah. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. If you send him away empty-handed, they're still poor, right? No, if they work for you for these years, you give them some wheat to plant, some lambs to, to graze and to grow. You give them a start so that they have the ability to work themselves back into a profitable situation. How do I know? Let's keep reading. Verse 14 says, You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor. What's in the threshing floor? Wheat. And from your wine press, there's the grape juice. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. 
Does this remind you of Israel coming out of Egypt? Egypt had made the children of Israel work for them for all these years, did not properly compensate them. So when they left Egypt, God had Egypt give them the wages for all those years of service they had done. That's the same thing it says here. It's when they're done working for you and you set them free, give them flocks, give them wheat, give them wine, give them oil, give them what they need to make a new start. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you. Why would this servant, when you say you're free, not want to leave? Doing well? Got a good situation? Maybe got an eye on your daughter for marriage. Oftentimes they would marry into the family, right? You've seen the movie Ben-Hur. And how the servants said, we're not leaving. When they say, we have been set free, but we're not leaving, they become what's called a bond servant. That is, they've been set free, but they choose voluntarily to continue to serve the master. Who calls themselves a bondservant in almost every epistle? The Apostle Paul. Paul has been set free when he got saved. But he's going to serve the Lord anyway. He's going to follow God's commandments because he chooses to. Because he loves the Lord. So it says in verse 16, And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you in your house, since he prospers with you, you shall take an awl. What's an awl? It's a tool with a real point, the end, right? And thrust it through his ear to the door. Everybody go, ow, ow, ow. Or you ladies with pierced ears say, yeah, what's the big deal? And he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servants you shall do likewise. So they've been set free, but they choose not to leave. So now the year of release no longer applies to them. They can't work another seven years and say, I've changed my mind, I want to go. When they made the choice, it's a permanent choice. So when Paul says, I'm a bondservant to the Lord, he means I'm going to continue to serve the Lord all the days of my life. That's the way I look at the Torah. Sometimes people say, Wayne, you don't have to. And I say, it's not a question whether I have to. I get to. I want to. Verse 18. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you. Not the one who chose to stay, but the one who says, thank you for my freedom. For he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. When you're obedient to God and you share as God commands, God will make sure you have no lack. Now we change topics. Verse 19. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. Meaning what? 
The firstborn male belongs to God. Period. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. They're going to Jerusalem. Why? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, No. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. What's the difference between said and spoke? Said is a pa'al verb, simple action. Spoke is pa'al, it's strong emotion, it's pounding the table. This is really important. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Go down to verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. Why? Why can't you go sacrifice the donkey? Donkey's unclean. So you keep the donkey, but you have to give a lamb in its place. Is a lamb a clean animal? Yes, it is. And if you will not redeem it, that is, if you will not redeem the donkey, then you shall break its neck. So you kill it. You cannot have it. But you don't eat it. And you don't sacrifice it. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So you must redeem the child. You don't get to kill the child. Okay? Let's all just make clear. God's very clear about that. You must redeem the child. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength in the hand of the Lord, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Who, whose firstborn did he not kill? Those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel. Yep. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Was Messiah the firstborn of Mary? Then why didn't she do the redemption for Messiah? She did. Let's go to the book of Luke. Got to watch those trick questions, huh? Like one I used to ask a lot is, how do you pronounce the capital of Kentucky? Is it Louisville or Louisville? It's Frankfurt. <laughs> so don't, don't let the question lead you astray. Okay. Book of Leviticus. No, Luke. Chapter 2. Verse 22. 
Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Messiah was the firstborn, therefore they followed the commandments of the law. They went to Jerusalem, they presented him to the Lord, and then in place of him, they brought the sacrifice to redeem him. So they followed the redemption process. Back to Deuteronomy 15. That was verse 19, so we're up to verse 20. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. So when you take the firstborn of the flock up to Jerusalem and they're sacrificed, parts of the sacrifice go on the altar to be consumed. The rest of the meat you receive back and you barbecue and have a feast before the Lord. So why does God have you do this in the first place? It brings you up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to rejoice in his presence. All that rejoicing makes you think of a feast of the Lord, doesn't it? The feast of tabernacles, when we will dwell in the Lord's presence forever and ever. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Verse 21. But now suppose that firstborn lamb or goat or cow has a defect in it. Can you sacrifice to the Lord an animal that's defective? It says if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Why not? Why do the sacrifices have to be spotless and without blemish? Because Jesus was, because Yeshua was, or Messiah was. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The sacrifices teach us about Messiah. Oops, it says we have a slow network connection. Danny and Susie say, is the redeeming of the firstborn a commandment for everywhere? No, it's in the land. Verse 22. There are people though in this country who do. They have a pediahabane service when the firstborn child is a male. They bring it to service and we do a special ceremony. But that's because they choose to. God doesn't say you can't do it. Just that you're not required to. Verse 22, you may eat it, that is the lamb or the goat or the cow that has a defect. Maybe it's got one leg shorter than another or broke a leg in the birthing process or something. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. How many times does God tell us not to eat the blood? A lot, huh? If there is a firstborn animal that's 
effective like that, would they then substitute another animal Jerusalem? Yes, they would substitute a different animal. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like it were a donkey. It becomes something that cannot be sacrificed. Okay, chapter 16, yeah. verse 1. Yes, in the, in the desert, they would not have, cause they couldn't have done that because they Right. This is, these are all when you come into the land. Because they're based upon God's providing what grows in the land. That's why the tithe only applied to those in the land of Israel and only during the days of the temple. So somebody asked, what about in America today? Does the tithe apply to us? The answer is no. Anything that you bring and put in the offering plate is an offering. <coughs> Offerings are voluntary. But God does not require you to come put 10% of your gross income in the offering plate. When preachers say that, they're being unbiblical. One of the worst abuses of that I heard recently was that you cannot go to heaven in the rapture unless you give 10% of your gross income to my ministry. And the, the one that was second most like that said, and it was by the same person, the most important thing you can teach to your people, pastors, is that they tithe 10% of their gross income. That's the most important thing you can teach your people. Not about salvation, not about Messiah's death, burial, and, and resurrection, but that they tithe 10% of their gross income. I quit listening to him. Chapter 6. Yes, Sam? Well, I ask, so, the, so if your firstborn male uh, of the flock or the herd is, has a defect, do you... For the replacement, do you take the second born and offer it? You can take anyone. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Chapter 16 is about the three pilgrim festivals, the Shlosh The three times all the males in Israel were required to go up to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals. So chapter 16, verse 1 says, observe the month of, in my Bible it says, Abib. Just fix it. It's Aviv. Aviv. The word Aviv means spring. Which is why, if you notice in the Jewish calendars, every so many years there's a, an Adar bait. A month is added to the calendar. And I hear people complain about that and say, God didn't tell us to do that. Well, the month of Aviv is required to be in the spring. And if they don't add the Adar bait every few years, pretty soon it would be in the winter, and then in the fall, and then in the summer. And it's got to be in the spring. So while God may not have directly said, add an Adar bait, Aviv has to be in the spring. That's what the word itself means is spring. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. 
So let's go back and read how that happened. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying... What's that word saying? It's a quote. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now I have many people say to me, Wayne, you tell us that there's two calendars, but the Bible doesn't say there's two calendars. In Exodus 12 it says, this shall be, it's newly appointed as the beginning of the year which means there was a beginning of the year before this. So this tells us why there are two calendars. Creation was in the month of Tishri in the fall. So that's the first month in the civil calendar. But now God adds a second calendar where Aviv is the first month of the year. That's called the ceremonial or religious calendar. And it should not surprise us because we all really live with two calendars. How many of you were physically born? How many? Most of you were. Okay. How many of you were born again? Which means you have two birthdays. And that's exactly what God is saying. He's saying to Israel, you are being born again. So this shall be the beginning of months from your rebirth. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month. What do we call the 10th of that first month? Of the year Messiah rode into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, that is less than 10. Are we getting a lot of ringing? I'll back away. Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. That is, if there aren't 10 people in your house, gather together with your neighbor. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish because it pictures Messiah. A male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So if you take a lamb and put it in the house on the 10th day and keep it for four days, what do the kids make out of it? A pet. A pet. So keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, well, Bain Ha'aravim, it's at 3 p.m. What did Messiah do on the 14th day of the first month at 3 p.m.? He died. He died. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. People keep telling me that makes the sign of the cross. No, it does not. Look over at the door. Go up one doorpost across the lintel and down the other. It's not a cross, it's a Hebrew letter chet, which stands for life. You put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house, and there is life in that house. 
Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Whoops, I got a number one out here. Let's see. Okay. That was just a question it said for later. I already answered that one by email. I wonder if they didn't get the email. But at any rate, verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. You know how it tells us in the Talmud this was done? The lamb was roasted over the fire with its head up and its arms outstretched on a pomegranate stick. Any pictures there? Yeah. That's the way it was done. With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. The entrails were wrapped around the head like a crown. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The word Passover literally refers to the lamb. The lamb that is slain. It says in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So he's going to kill every firstborn man and beast unless what? Unless the blood is upon the door. So what if a Jewish household does not put blood? The firstborn dies. What if an Egyptian household puts the blood on the doorpost? The firstborn lives. It's not who your parents are, but it's are you following God out of faith? Verse 13, now the blood shall be for a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hebrew literally says, I will hover over that house. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God will hover over that house. And, with the, and when the death spirit comes through, God will say, not this house. No, no, no. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, which means what? Forever. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. What does that mean, a holy convocation? It means a gathering together to rehearse. The first day when they killed the lamb, what does that rehearse? For 1,500 years it rehearses Messiah's death before he's crucified. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. That is on the first or the seventh day. No work is to be done. 
but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared for you. It's from this verse that in our household, we don't cook on Shabbat. Because God said, on these Shabbats, no work except that which everyone must eat. So he makes an exception for these particular Shabbats. Why would he need to make an exception for this particular Shabbat if it applied all the time? That's why we don't cook on Shabbat. Verse 17, so you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on the same day I will have brought your armies, that means hosts, it doesn't have to be soldiers, it just means the large group of people, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. But isn't this just for Jewish people? No, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Who wrote 1 Corinthians? Paul did. To Jews or to Gentiles who are believers? To Gentiles who become believers, we know from 1 Corinthians 12 too, which says, you know that you were Gentiles. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find that the Apostle Paul has been teaching the Gentile churches that he's established to keep the Passover. Verse 6 says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. What feast? Passover. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this lets us know that Passover is for all people to be celebrated in all places, not just in the land of Israel. Let's see, I have a red question over here. Let's see what it is. Should we get rid of the food left over from Passover? The answer is, if you've had a lamb, yes. Most people don't have lamb on Passover, but some do. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're up to verse 2. Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. So where is that? Jerusalem. So every sacrifice you would take up to Jerusalem, you would not sacrifice at your various houses. So what if there's no temple, like there isn't now? There's simply no sacrifices. What happens when the temple is reestablished, as they're hoping to do very, very soon? Then the sacrifices will begin again. If you've been listening to the news, they've been talking a lot about the new high-speed rail line that's to go from the airport in Tel Aviv to the Temple Mount. And its purpose, they say, is so that people from all nations of the world can come and bring their sacrifices to take them up to the Temple Mount to sacrifice to the Lord. They say because the new rebuilt temple will be a house for all nations. little different from days of old. 
So verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. How do you say that in Hebrew? Lechem oni. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. God never wants us to forget how Israel and the mixed multitude were called out of Egypt through the great miracles of God. Because it all teaches about our being led to freedom from sin through the shed blood of our Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So the Passover in particular teaches about the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, and God never wants that to be forgotten. Verse 4, And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight, that's three in the afternoon, remain overnight until morning. Verse 5. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. That you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. You shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. And here we've run out of time, so we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 8.